Gospel of John chapter 1. Uh, I don't know if you can remember the last time you uh, had a medical emergency. And uh, maybe you know what it is to be uh, hurried off to the emergency room of a hospital. I personally have never had that joy yet. I have a feeling that having crossed the 55 mark last Tuesday, I believe it was, can't remember exactly, uh, that that day's probably coming sometime. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed, given the way that my life is, that I haven't done something stupid enough to injure myself bad enough that that's had to happen. Uh, in God's grace, he has protected me and kept me in many circumstances. When you go into an ER room, I, I've been there with my dad. I've driven my dad to the hospital on two occasions when he was having some heart issues in his providence. I was, uh, happened to be available at my uh, parents' home when this happened. And what's the first thing that they check when you go into the hospital? Not the sarcastic response, okay, your insurance card, okay? I know that that's not the one I'm looking for, okay? What's the first thing that they check for? Vital signs, okay? Vital signs are indications of life. They check things like body temperature, pulse, breathing, blood pressure, and all of these vital signs are used as measures of basic body function. If someone has vital signs, it's likely that they are alive. It doesn't mean that they're in good health, but the stronger those vital signs are, the higher degree of health one is experiencing. And so as we look at the physical body and realize that vital signs are indications of physical health, signs of life, uh, and by the way, if you don't have any of them, that's not good, okay? You need to seek some help, okay? But as that is true of the physical body, it is also true of the body of Christ. It's fascinating to me that when God speaks of the church, he, one of the favorite designations, probably the most used illustration of the church, is it is a body. And that means that it is a body that has parts that are vital to its health. And we understand as church leadership that at times we need to talk about our vital signs. We need to talk about those indicators that determine whether or not we as a church family are healthy. And every indicator we could talk about at some level will filter down into personal experience. Okay, realizing this, there are no healthy churches that don't have healthy parts or people in them. Okay, so as we talk through what the church is to be, I hope you don't go home and say, boy, the church really needs to get its act together, which honestly is how many people look at church. Well, I just don't like that church. It's not healthy. It's not this. It's not that. Without ever looking in the mirror and saying, time out, I'm part of that church. And those characteristics are probably part of my life. And so we need to do an honest evaluation of our vital signs. We need to do a health check, a health survey, if you will, to see how well we are doing with the conviction that healthy churches are made up of healthy people spiritually. So we're going to begin a physical on our church family, encouraging each one of us to check our vital signs. This morning, we're going to begin with the topic of the heart of the church, and that is the heart of evangelism. And I know this is a topic that for many people inspires fear, it inspires guilt. It inspires a sense of intimidation. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm going to go out of here feeling bad today. 
And I honestly have as my desire this morning before God a desire to encourage you to engage in, in this blessing that God has given to you. And that is to take the truth that he communicates through his son, Jesus Christ, and to begin to embark on a life that sees sharing Jesus, communicating the gospel, not as a burden, not as something that should drive us with guilt and fear and intimidation, but instead we have the privilege of sharing with people around us the most important message that has ever been given to man. If you look back into Luke 24, and I want you to do this real quick, Luke 24, verse 47. It says, after Christ was risen on the third day, he proclaimed to his disciples that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all nations or peoples, beginning at Jerusalem. And then he makes this statement to his disciples. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And they're the 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 indication there is that by virtue of having known Christ personally, as every believer does, there comes with that a, a privilege to make the name that can change lives known to people around you. And that is, in a sense, I think the burden that arises out of John 1. We, we could look at this text from a number of different angles. It's a text that certainly... Uh, flies around, if you will, in the high areas of theology. There is a lot of deep theological truth that is present in John 1. And what I want to do this morning is spend time quickly glancing at the deep theology and then move to what we will call practical theology. And that is the, what difference does this truth about God and about Jesus and the gospel make in my daily experience as a believer? And I challenge you to think of it in this way. As you look at your life today, does the gospel of Christ, the good news that you, if you know it, is that, how is that influencing your daily life? Is it part of your conversation with people around you? Because I think this is a text that is powerfully going to challenge us and encourage us to engage with God in this idea of you are my witnesses. You are the people in whose lives I have moved. I have done something in your life that I want to encourage you this morning to share with people around you. I believe that's the heart of God. And I believe this text reveals the heart of God and the gospel of God. So let's look at this text, first of all, from the idea of God's heart for the world. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna read through this and just make some comments quick and then come to some concluding principles this morning. Verse one says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And as you go further on in the text, you understand that when it uses the word was with God, it's talking about the presence of Jesus in the Trinity with God. So the first thing that we learn then is that Jesus is eternal God in the context of Trinity, understanding God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Then verse 3 moves on. After saying that Jesus is eternal God, through him... All things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. Okay, so what do I deduce from that? Jesus is not only eternal God, he is also the creator of the world that I live in. And that, that truth that we as the church assert regularly is crucial to the gospel. Because his rightful rule is, and understanding his rightful rule is the only way that I can even begin to grasp what the Bible means by the word sin. 
who see if there's no creator, and I believe this is why an evolutionary view of life is so compelling and popular. It's attractive. Because if there is no God, then I can do what I please. Because there is no final authority to which I have to give an answer. This text stands up and says, this one that I am speaking about, eternal God, existed with him and is in fact the creator of the world. Okay, and that is a very powerful truth. And we'll come back to how that fits into this understanding of God's grace towards rebels. It's a world that he made. And it's a world that he loves. Verses 4 and 5. In him, Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And that becomes your first kind of segue into where this text is moving. This is a text that talks about the birth of Christ. You notice the difference between this gospel and Matthew and Luke. Very substantively is that there is no extended indication of the birth of Christ. But there there is deep birth talk present in this text. Okay, the life and light is moving in our direction. It is becoming visible, and we'll talk about how that happens. He is light and life. And I want to say this this morning. This text emphasizes that Jesus is the light of men. Light shines in the darkness. Darkness doesn't understand it. There is a tension in the world that you and I live in, and I believe that is a tension that is being heightened in a world that is very relativistic about morality. Okay, when there is a slide, a breaking away, a shedding of restrictive boundaries, uh, there is something very powerful happening. It is a rejection of truth. It is a rejection of light. And as Jesus comes, he is light and life, and he is called the word of truth. And folks, I think it's very important that we understand how desperately needy we are of truth in the age that we live in. And how important it is that people understand that there is an absolute standard to which every created being must comply. And that drives the heart of those that seek to share the gospel. We live in a culture where, I use these words, there is a bit of a a moral, one writer called it schizophrenia, meaning we're, we're finding ourselves calling things good that we do in an absurd sort of way, the attempt to justify absurd behavior. The Planned Parenthood illustration is powerful. The idea of taking the parts of babies and marketing them is then justified because of how much good that organization does. That'd be like saying Hitler reigned his country pretty well. There wasn't a lot of rebellion. And that's justification for what he was doing. And that's the moral schizophrenia. That's the elitist mindset that is being foisted on the country that you and I live in. Where good is called evil and evil is called good. You you can't share the gospel of Christ unless you're willing to proclaim him as creator, light, life, and truth. You, You will sell a soft gospel. You won't share the true gospel. And I want to challenge you that this text, he is light and that light shines in the darkness. That means the context that Jesus came into in his incarnation was a, 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 an, an aura, a, a place of darkness where there was a desperate need for light. If you've ever come in the back of my house over the last three years, you'll know that I disconnected a three-way switch. And so our basement is always, as you enter a house from the back, which is how most people come in, dark. People are learning how to use their cell phone lights. 
Uh, last night, Doug came to our house at about 10 o'clock. He and his family arrived. Fortunately, he had his son, Matt, with him, who's here with us this morning, who is an engineer, knows how the cell phone has a light on it. Doug didn't know that, okay? <laughs> so the blessing is that I didn't hook up that switch, Doug, and now you have light, okay? So when you go into darkness, your first desire, when you know it's dark, your first desire is for illumination and light. Folks, that's the world you live in. Where there is a moral darkness. And in darkness, there is a desire for illumination. And John says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he comes in a dark world, darkened by sin, visually impaired, he is light and life. And we need to get courageous in our sharing of the gospel if we're going to share the true gospel. And I think, if you said to me, Tim, why do you think most people don't share the gospel? I think most of us don't want to appear to be so strongly people of truth that people may not like us anymore. And I honestly believe it's that simple. I want people's approval more than I want them to know the light that brings life. That's what I wrestle with. That's the, that's the idol that often compels my interactions with people and causes me to feel fear and intimidation instead of telling people what they really need to know. And John puts the emphasis on this. Verses 10 and 11. And I know I'm skipping three verses. Okay, we'll come back to that. It says, he, Jesus, was in the world. So now where am I? I'm at the birth of Christ. Do you see? Do you see how John brings in the birth of Christ without the narrative of the birth? There is an assumption here that he, Jesus, came into the world being eternal God, being creator, and he came and manifested himself. And though, he, and though the world was made through him, and this is a key thing, though he was its creator, its rightful ruler and maker, The world did not recognize him. It didn't even say, hey, isn't that? He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So now you have the broader context of humanity and the context of the Jewish people through whom the Messiah is coming. They're his own people, his own nation. He came to that which was his own. His own did not receive. And the word literally here is they did not embrace and welcome him. My customary approach to Doug Finkbeiner and his wife when they come into my house on a Saturday evening when they're staying over with us is to welcome them and to give an embrace that says, we love you. We count you as dear friends. The creator God came to the world at large and to his people specifically did not recognize and did not welcome. That's me, apart from the work of God's grace. I would rather run my own life as if there is not a creator and as if there is not truth so that I can call my own shots. Folks, if you want to understand the heart of your neighbor, of your child that you're raising, of yourself, you need to understand that there is a gross, strong tendency to reject the creator and want life on my own terms. And it's only then that I can really understand the essence of my sinfulness. What is the essence of my sinfulness? It is high-handed rebellion against God himself, against the creator. It is little Tim Hoff shaking his little puny fist in the face of eternal God. That's my sin. And it's in that sense that when I go out into the world, I know I identify with every person I'm talking to. It doesn't matter if they have more glaring faults than me. We're all the same. 
We are sinners in darkness in need of light and life. And if you know it, Jesus says to you, you are my witnesses. Get a burden to turn on the light. Okay, fix the three-way complicated switch in your house spiritually so that people can see. You see, life protects. Light protects from danger. And when we bring the light of Christ, we, we enter into this rescue mission that Jesus came for. That's really what this is about. Verse 14 then, or I'm, I'm sorry, verse, verse 12 goes on to tell us a very fascinating truth. It says, the world rejected him. There was this categorical rejection. Yet in the midst of his coming to all who received him, that is that not every individual gave the same response to the good news of Christ. To those that received him, that is, and now receiving is now defined as believing on his name. He gives them the right to become what? Children of God. So who's getting converted? Those in darkness. Rebels are being transformed, being converted, regenerated into children of God. And Jesus came to save. In Mark, he says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The coming of Jesus is the movement of God into our world to seek and to save. And folks, if that is the heart of God, if I can study John 1, this is about God coming, God seeking, God declaring, God saving. Then when I am living that kind of a life, I'm imitating the God who has rescued me from my sin. And I can move then into the world around me saying something like this. I am a beggar who found bread. I am a broken man who found forgiveness. And there's hope in Christ for you. He came to seek. He came to save as many as would believe in him. And then I want you to notice verse 13. Because my, my summary of this little section, verses 10 through 12, is in Jesus, God saves. And I say it for this reason. Verse 13. These who become children of God, that is new birth, are children not born of natural descent, meaning it's not an act of human effort. Secondly, it is not of human decision or of a husband's will. Okay, that's interesting. Every person that is in Christ is in Christ then because of what? Because of God and the gospel. And when he regenerates a heart, there is this faith that comes in this new relationship with God. So why are we afraid when we share the gospel? You know why I think often we're afraid? Because we take on way too much responsibility. God in Jesus, in the gospel, is a saving God. We sing this. I, these songs, Carmelo, I'm, in a good way, I'm plagued, okay, with these thoughts that run through my mind when I am, when I am preparing sermons. All right, we sing this. You are the Lord, the saving one. That's that truth. Folks, you're not in Christ because, oh, I get it. I make a decision. You're in Christ because God worked in your heart, opened your eyes to see the truth about who you are and who Jesus is. He gave you the gift of faith and the gift of life uh, for which you can never take credit, nor do you ever have to brag. And every time you share the gospel with people, you know that you are joining hands with omnipotence. Let that kill your fear. Oh, I have to go out and win someone. You can't. You're not that good. And it is not the design of God. 
The design of God is that you would go and share the gospel of God and let God sweep people into his kingdom. I've never had a Christian come up to me and say, you know what? The other week I shared the gospel with someone and they trusted Jesus. Can't believe that. (laughs) And I'll say this. What I find is that when God's people begin to share God's gospel, that there's hope for sinners and that hope is not rooted in the individual that you're talking to. So put the emphasis on God and the gospel. That when people start to share that truth, there is, even if there is not conversion at that point, there is a joy in, in joining hands with omnipotence to do the work that God started in sending his son. He came to seek and to save the lost. And when we begin to seek and save the lost in our daily life, we begin to join with God. Now, verse 14 that Carmel mentioned earlier, this is incarnation, right? The word, the eternal creator God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father. He is full of grace and truth. I want you to think for a moment of that statement. Jesus, when he came, was full of grace and everything that people needed to know about themselves and the gospel. And he came in flesh with the purpose and aim of living amongst humanity to make the gospel known. And that thought should accelerate our witness. And I would say that if Jesus makes God visible and Jesus in coming makes the gospel of God known and intelligible, then the incarnation, the coming of Jesus is the acceleration of God's plan of salvation for planet earth. His coming accelerates, it illuminates, it makes more tangible the work that begins in the Old Testament. And then verse 17 kind of closes this out, uh, begin in verse 16. It says, From the fullness of his grace, Jesus, we have all received one blessing upon another. And this is beautiful because the idea is here, blessings stacking up upon blessings. So if you know Christ, what is John emphasizing? He's emphasizing that Jesus came. Jesus changes your heart. Jesus brings you to faith in God and release from your rebellion and sin. And then he pours out into your life one blessing after another in relationship with him. John goes on to say this, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but God, God, the one and only who is at the Father's right hand, has made him known. So in the coming of Christ, what happens? God becomes visible and the gospel becomes known. That is this beginning of this movement of God in our direction. Now, I want us, having laid that theological foundation To now think practically about how this text bears on our role in witness to the gospel of God who saves. Okay, and this is where we'll move into a more practical discussion. And I'll say this to you. That theological foundation of who Jesus is is crucial to your understanding of how to share the gospel. You have to know him as creator first. It's the only way you know your sinfulness. You have to know him as the one who came in flesh. Incarnation in flesh and dwelt among us. To bear the price of our sin and die on Calvary's cross, you have to know him as the one who has risen as our glorious Savior and Lord, victorious over everything that would keep you from God. Now, our role in witness to God and his gospel. So we see God in the gospel. Now, what is my role in making known 
the gospel of God. And I'll, first, I want to make, I'm going to make two observations. One is this, bearing witness to Jesus and the gospel is John's call, that is John the Baptist now, and ours. Okay, bearing witness to Jesus, God and the gospel, is the call of John the Baptist, and it is also our call. So now go back to verse 6 with me. The text says, there came a man who was sent from God. Okay, and so simple this is. There came a man sent from God, a man called by God to take the gospel of God, a, another person like you and I, okay, who is now commissioned by God with a very specific call. He was sent by God. And what's fascinating to me is Jesus could look at his disciples and say, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending who? You. So folks, if you want to know how to share the gospel, look at Jesus, look at John, and do what they do in relationship to the gospel of God. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. This is now John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light that is Christ. So that through him, all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So what do I need to do? To share the gospel, I need to take the story of Jesus and shine the light of that story into the lives of people around me as God gives opportunity. Okay, evangelism is taking what we know of Christ, light and life, and making that known to the world in which we have been called to live. John's call comes up, I think, two or three, at least two times, I think three times in this text. John was sent as a witness. Now, a witness does this. They bear testimony to what they have seen and heard. And the task of evangelism is to go into all the world and be my witnesses. Now, we ramp that up. We make that complicated. What does a witness do in terms of a Christian witness? They tell people what God has done through, for them through Jesus in the gospel. They testify. And I thought of this as I was preparing this sermon, knowing we were going to have communion this Sunday. I thought every person who can come forward in good conscience and as a believer partake of the elements of the Lord's table knows enough to share the gospel. So all our excuses about ignorance, can we just throw them out the window? All of our fears, well, I might get to ask a question I can't answer. You will. I guarantee you it'll happen. If you start to engage with God, you join hands with omnipotence and start to share the gospel, you're going to have to say to someone, you know, I don't know. What people need to hear is a witness about Christ. What is embodied in these elements in terms of message is enough. We make it so complicated that we feel intimidated and by intimidation, we are silenced. Jesus' clear statement to his disciples is, you are my witnesses. John captured it in verse 22 in this way. And people are, have come to him, verse 22 of John 1, they're interrogating him, the Pharisees, who do you think you are? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, 
So what is John doing? John's like, I, I don't know. I'm like this guy who came before me. I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight, get right your heart for the way of the Lord. And folks, I love the simplicity of how John saw himself. What am I? I am a person who gives voice to the amount of knowledge of Jesus that I have. I, I, I express that in my daily life. I am a voice. Now, there is a phenomenon in our world called Facebook. And I thought about this. I thought, what happens on Facebook? You know what happens on Facebook? People do things and then testify to them. That's all they're doing. Now, the motives for why they do it, shall I go there? No, I shouldn't go there. Some of the motives are good. Some aren't. But here's what everyone's doing on Facebook. Typically, telling people about how great their life is. I haven't found people using Facebook yet to say, you know what, today my day was terrible. I had a crappy day. And what most people are doing is doing things that make people feel bad about their own life. But what is Facebook? It's witness. It's testimony. Through various means, it's witness. It's telling out, this happened, that happened. My response to that, what is the gospel? The gospel is taking the good news of Christ and evangelism is sharing that message with people around us. We're quick to share all the good things about our lives. I am very quick to share with you good news about our daughters. I'll probably show you pictures if you ask about them. Okay, why? Because to me, they're good news. I love talking about them and I do it without hesitation. I may, I may even at times ask someone how many children I have so I can tell them about my kids, okay? Otherwise, I'm not sure. But here's one thing I know. When somebody asks me about my kids, they don't go, oh, shucks. I, you know, I just, I, witness, I give witness to the truth about what's going on in their life. Folks, if we can do it over the most inane details of life, monotonous and repetitive and ultimately very boring, can't we do it with the glorious gospel of Christ? To witness is to testify. It's to give a record of what God has done. Tell people what good things God has done for you. And John comes and says, I'm just a voice. All I do is tell people about God. And I just think what an awesome thing it would be if we as a, as a church would become a group of people that are not embarrassed anymore about the gospel. Now, here's what Paul says when he talks about the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1. I believe it's verse 17. He says, the preaching of the cross, that is the message of Jesus, is to them that perish foolishness. Apart from the awakening of the spirit of God in the heart, it sounds like, eh. <laughs> you know the feeling when you've shared and there's no sense of spirit at work? And you're kind of like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll pick this up some other time. And then you know, when you're sharing in a context where there is hearing. And there is, honestly, no greater joy in life for someone that knows and loves Christ to see someone begin to get it. I remember praying with a friend of mine, Jim Ramey. When I met, I met Jim and Karen 25 years ago when we first came here in 1990, going door to door, went over to his house after they visited our church and Shared the gospel with Jim, and I felt like, oh, that's like throwing darts at a cinder block wall. That's what it felt like. <laughs> and we got done, and that was my read, right? And all I was doing was 
I had a pretty clear pattern of how I shared the gospel. I don't even follow it anymore. I really, I use a much different approach today. I'm going to encourage you, just grow in how you share and talk about Christ and what he's done in your life. Share your story. Testify. And I remember getting done with you and say, okay, I was done. I was shut down. I was, I'm leaving, okay? You don't get it, okay? Until I felt. So I said, well, let's pray. Let's do something spiritual so I can get out of here, okay? I got done praying. And he reaches his arm after I'm done praying. He's like, I want to pray. And I'm like, God works in times when you don't even know it. And you'll never have someone come up to you and say, hey, you know, would you tell me about Jesus? And I've had that happen like once or twice. It is rare. I've never had that happen and say, you know what, I'm just a little busy today. <laughs> no, everything can change in our lives to make God and the gospel known. So I'm encouraging you, start to look at your life like John did. What am I? I'm a voice. There were, John was weird. John the Baptist was an odd bird. I mean, there's no way to read the story of John and not come away saying, okay, that guy, if I lived then, I would have probably not have liked him. I would have thought, I would have taken his picture and put it on Facebook. Look what I saw today. I mean, I think he, he's that, he's that guy. And folks, I want to tell you something. God made him an enigma to attract people to hear from him, something they would never go to hear from anybody else. That's why I take comfort in the way that God made me, okay? Like, I'm, I'm over that. Okay, God, just use me. My greatest joy in life is to get those opportunities to share the gospel. My heart is in tune with God. I have no greater joy than to do that. And I just think, what would happen in our church if we just, I'm a voice. You don't have to be a professor. You don't have to be a Sunday school teacher or a preacher. It, it disturbs me. Well, you could do that better than me. Why don't you step out and see what happens when you hold the hand of omnipotence and you begin to see things happen that you can't do and then it will humble you. And when you come to worship, your worship will change. You will declare the praises of the God who saves. And you will say, you are mighty to save. And I am lame. I am crippled when it comes to sharing the gospel in terms of bringing, I can't, but I don't have to. The one that holds my hand could do anything. I just have to step out in faith and say, okay, I'm tired of being silenced by fear and shame. I want to start to tell people the truth. Folks, do you ever notice that those in darkness are glad to talk about their darkness and their justification for the darkness over and over? And those that know the truth tend to be very quiet and silent. I just want to tell you something this morning. God can use you. If you're willing to step up and say, like John, I just want to be a voice crying out in the wilderness. Get ready for the coming of God. I noticed on Doug's dad's funeral on Friday, nobody had a problem testifying about a great dad. And I thought we should never have a problem testifying about a great God ever. At the center of John's witness and ours, is verse 29. I want to read this for you. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. Love to see that. And he said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. At the center of John's witness and ours, is God in flesh and the gospel. 
Folks, think about how God worked in your life. Think about how he brought you to saving faith in Christ and testify. Testify to what God is doing in and through your life for his glory. Realizing that the gospel finds visibility in Jesus's actions and ours, but it finds voice in the word of truth by which we are saved. And there is a danger that we face in our day of decoupling visibility of the gospel and the voice of the gospel. We're blessed with Harold and Kelly to be connected to a ministry in West Virginia that's different than ours, but the same as ours. They exist to take all of those goods that come in their 40 tractor trailer loads full, and they distribute them in the name of Jesus. And what are they doing? In their act of love distributing, they're making Jesus visible. But then they are giving voice to Jesus to make him audible. And folks, this is what we are called by God to do. Never to settle with letting people see Jesus, but always boldly and courageously being the witnesses that God has called us to do so that they can know Jesus in a fuller and truer way. That word of the gospel is crucial. Our witness to him is crucial by the Spirit to people coming to know and understand the gospel. Now, as I look at this text, I come away from it saying that the God that I know and love is a seeking God. He came in his son, Jesus Christ, to seek and to save that which is lost. And I, this morning, want to, I want to encourage you to share in confidence, in boldness, and in deep love and passion the light and life that is found in Christ. And to go into the week before you, confident, Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses when the Spirit of God comes upon you. That we would find our fear fading as we find ourselves enveloped in the Spirit of God who comes to give us power to communicate gospel truth to the world around us. Don't try this alone, Okay? But let God begin to prick your heart and prompt you with the desire that those around you would come to know the gospel of God and his son, Jesus Christ, who is so gloriously revealed in it. Join with him in this effort. And I also want to just say this as an encouragement. Our evangelism almost always happens in the context of existing relationships. Okay, very seldom if I had opportunities to share the full gospel with someone apart from a relationship with them. And as I read this text, John 1 ends with a fascinating kind of a, an interaction between some of those that we will later know to be the disciples of Christ. I think the text says that Andrew comes to Jesus and then Andrew goes and finds his brother Simon Peter and he brings him to Jesus. Okay, so there is this natural flow that when someone comes to know Christ, they begin to seek to bring people to Christ. Okay, and as you do that, that's when we join hands with God, join hands with omnipotence, begin to see the gospel flesh out and begin to work in your daily life. That's the flow of the gospel. We'll see it when we look at John 4 next Sunday morning. The woman at the well hears the truth about her heart, her rebellion. It's blown open. And what does she do? Come and see a man that told me everything I've done. Come and see someone that knows me thoroughly, completely, in all of my ugliness and loves me. 
Folks, that's the message we get to proclaim. A God of truth who loves. The other thing I would encourage you to do is when you're out on the street and you're mixing with people, look for opportunities. Someone said this to me about five years ago, and I just had it happen on Friday. He said, when you're seeking to cultivate a relationship with someone for the gospel, tell them that you talk to God. Ask them if there's something you can pray about. On Friday after the funeral, I was with uh, Linda Matthews, my parents, and my wife. And we were eating at this restaurant called Roy and Diner. I, I went to this place my whole life. Okay. And we're sitting there, and this girl is, as we're finishing the meal and getting ready to leave, she says, oh, I, 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 you're not going to see me at the end when you leave because I have to go to a doctor's appointment. What are you going for? And she told us. And Linda picked up. She was a burden girl, very clearly a burden girl. And Linda said, can we pray for you? She like slumped down at the end of the table, just down to her knees, put out on the table, and we prayed over her. When she got up, she looked at us, tears filling her eyes, and she said, I have never done that. I thought, wow. I've never done that. Folks, all I'm saying, there is nothing extraordinary in sharing Christ. It is extraordinary. But it should be the normative modus operandi for the church. So that if we're going to be a healthy church, what do we have to be? If we're going to be the body of Christ, we have to have a heart for the lost. We have to have a desire to see people that don't know him coming to hear the words of truth through visible actions and then through voiced actions. We need to get serious about that body temperature, that pulse rate, that breathing pattern, whatever you want to call it. We need to get serious about that and say, God, we need to become a, a group of people that flexes our spiritual muscle in terms of speaking the words of life. And get creative about how God may want to begin to work through your life. I sat down with two men on the porch of a house that I'm working on in Oxford at the, earlier this week, thinking about Don's challenge to us. So I got these little cards that say, come and see on them, hidden beside me. <laughs> I'm writing this guy a check to pay for some work he did. I thought of this first. I thought, if I have been a jerk while this guy has been working for me, he's going to be deaf to anything I have to say. If I have been dishonest with him, forget it. Now, by God's grace, things worked smoothly and well, and I was able to say, thank you, you did a great job. And can I invite you to come to a service at our church? And you're going to find this. Everybody's going to say, sure. <laughs> They're lying to you, okay? <laughs> Prepare yourself for that, okay? But here's the thing. Here's what I found. As I said to him, I said, we're going to be doing a service that is for people that don't normally go to church, and we would love to have you come as our guest. That's how I'm sharing this, that we're going to do a service a little bit different than what we normally do, and our focus is going to be for people that don't normally go to church. Would you like to come and, and visit with us? And so I want to encourage you to, as you go, make disciples. That's the call of Christ to the church. You get up and you begin your day as you're going through your day with your family first, with your neighbors, with people you work with. And here's what you're going to find. If you don't cultivate relationships with people, you will not have a gospel to share with people. You've got to care enough in order to gain an audience. I, I'm going to tell you this. 
I've thought about people in my neighborhood I can invite. I guarantee you Tim Hoff will not walk up to the door of someone I've never talked to and invite them to come. It won't happen. I'm too afraid. <laughs> I won't do that. Will you give me a relationship? And God has my heart in the right place, not tied up in my own stuff. And there's an opportunity that God can use. So I challenge you, as you go through this week, God and the gospel, let it be known. Now, we're going to take communion right now. And Jesus made a fascinating statement about the Lord's Supper. He said, every time you do this, you show the Lord's death until he comes. Every time. And that's why I'm saying to you, if every time I do this, I proclaim his death until he comes, that means that whatever is symbolized here that I as a believer should understand in order to partake, that basic truth that someone died in your place for the wrath of God that you deserve, hung on a cross for you, and wants to forgive you of your sin, that basic message, I could take that message out to people around me and begin to share that. If you know enough, as you partake of the elements today, as you sit in your chair and you pray, asking God first for a clean heart before him, for him to show you if there's sin that needs to be uncovered, that needs to be confessed and forgiven. As you do that, would you pray and say, God, this message, give me courage this week to speak the words of life. Folks, it's not complicated. But will you give it voice? Will you put it in words? For someone around you and watch God begin to work for his glory through his church. And hopefully when we get into that new building, God will have us filling up. Because we have become a church that is healthy in the area of our sharing the good news message of Christ. God, help us 